How do the changing rules and landscape of the name, image, and likeness rights of student athletes affect the way colleges and universities run their athletic programs and manage their relationship with student athletes? I'm Po Yi, a partner in Manette's advertising, marketing, and media practice, and this is Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manette. July 1st, 2021 was a watershed moment for college sports spawning a new industry that allows student-athletes to endorse brands and products and monetize their name, image, and likeness, commonly referred to as NIL, while maintaining eligibility to compete in intercollegiate athletics. For years, college sports has generated tremendous income for the big NCAA schools, especially from media rights and licensing deals for football and basketball. But under NCAA's policy, student-athletes participating in such sports were prohibited from endorsing commercial products or services or from otherwise earning any compensation, monetary or otherwise. NCAA removed such prohibition effective July 1, 2021. Since then, there has been an explosion of commercial NIL deals involving student-athletes. This still nascent but fast-growing market is currently full of risks and uncertainties for everyone involved especially for colleges and universities with student-athletes that are eager to explore their newfound commercial potential. To help schools navigate these risks and uncertainties, Manat has launched a consolidated NIL program playbook for colleges and universities engaging in this space and an accompanying scorecard to help standardize best practices for program development, deal-making, and compliance. In today's episode, I am joined by my colleagues in Manat Digital and Technology Group, Matt Reese, Kaylin Gutierrez, and David Frisbee, who co-authored the Manat NIL playbook with me. Matt, who is both a consultant and an attorney, is a veteran in the sports entertainment industry, both in-house and in private practice, and was a longtime chief legal counsel for an NHL club prior to joining Manat. Kaylin is a consultant who advises next-gen companies and entrepreneurs through the full landscape of business, brand development, partnership, investment, and growth opportunities, and David is also a consultant who delivers enterprise-wide strategic analysis, as well as project management and business development support. David, welcome to our podcast as a first-time guest. And Matt and Kaylin, it's great to have you back. Matt, you've been following NIL issues even before NCAA issued its policy change over a year ago. And you've also discussed NIL issues with me in this podcast before. What are the highlights? Thanks for having me back on. Um, and the good news is I, I think we, we actually got some things right looking forward on the last podcast. It is a very large market in its first year. Uh, it's over 900 million is kind of a, a commonly accepted number. And it is expected to exceed a billion dollars in, in revenue next year. And from those deals, as we had prognosticated or predicted, two-thirds of the deals involve social media posts, and most are, are low compensation. So it's, it's high volume. Big dollars are going to specific sports, such as football. But in terms of if you take out that specific sport, then women student-athletes have a slight majority of NIL deals. You and I have spent a fair amount of time discussing state NIL laws previously in this podcast. Have there been any further legislative developments at the state level? There have been. And what's interesting is that more states are not enacting laws. They're starting to 
repeal them or change them in order to remove what they see are elements of the state laws that are non-competitive or make their schools and their jurisdictions less competitive. So Alabama repealed its law, South Carolina suspended its law for a year, and Connecticut made some changes to uh, allow student athletes to obtain university approval over using school IP and NIL deals. What other notable developments in the NIL space can you share with us? Well, for one, uh, there's a new NCAA constitution from earlier this year, which requires all member institutions to actually have an NIL policy. So whether you're Division One, Two, or Three, whether you have seen a high volume of NIL deals or not, you have to have a policy in place. And then colleges and universities, again, under the NCAA Constitution, are the ones responsible ultimately for establishing clear policies for its student-athletes. And so the challenge is how to develop a structure and a governance structure, compliance structure that creates a a win-win-win for all the stakeholders involved and make the school attractive to student-athletes, but also protects the mission of the school and benefits the student-athletes. That's a pretty big challenge. Those are not easy goals to achieve. So this new freedom to make money as a student by endorsing brands without sacrificing participation in college sports sounds great for student-athletes, but can also create problems for both the student-athlete and the school. David, you are a former athlete. Knowing what you know today, having worked as a professional consultant for some time, what resources and support do you think would be helpful to student-athletes? And what do you think the school's role should be in providing them? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me on uh, as a newbie to the podcast. I'm definitely excited to be on. But one misconception is that, you know, you have 450,000 student athletes out there nationally. And the thought that all of them are going to be running after NIL deals is not true. You're going to have many of them who just want to be athletes and students. That's it. They don't want to chase the monetization opportunities that are out there. And so, and Matt was alluding to it, schools right now are trying to walk that line of how much should we quote unquote participate in NIL so they don't come off as either aiding or restricting student athletes from engaging in these opportunities. However, I feel like regardless how risk averse a school wants to be, there are some basic resources that every school can offer to their student athletes. One being education on NIL compliance related matters. Each year, all athletic programs provide NCAA compliance training already. So this is an easy lift to just include NIL compliance matters. And that way you have more assurance that your student athletes know what the do's and don'ts are so that they're not putting themselves in any risk or potential harm if they do decide to participate in NIL. Another one is financial literacy. These student athletes start receiving monetary compensation from NIL deals that brings on a lot of financial responsibility. And to assume that all these students are equipped to handle this on their own is, I think, is a wrong assumption to make. You have to remember a lot of these student athletes come from disadvantaged backgrounds, so they may not have had access to a lot of these resources beforehand. So providing them access to basic financial principles, I think, would go a long way. I mean, now they have to pay taxes, where before... If any of them did have jobs, it was a part-time job and paying taxes wasn't something that they had to do. So now they do. They have to figure that out. You're making money. How do you start to save that money for the future? 
These are basic things that I think would benefit a lot of student athletes. What about social media training? Since so many NIL deals involve social media, student athletes are already savvy with the use of social media, but it's not the same when you're making money doing so. Social media and brand development training, I think, will go a long way also. This generation of student athletes, they live on social media. So you want to make sure that they're not conducting themselves in a way that could cause them harm or the school harm. So providing basic training on what are do's and don'ts to do on social media to make sure that you're elevating yourself from a personal brand perspective in the best way, I think would benefit the student athletes a long way. Because at the end of the day, these are 18 to 21 year olds that are entering into legal contracts. As you mentioned, I am a former student athlete. And for me, I would just want to make sure I'm setting myself up for success. As an advertising lawyer, I work a lot with clients on social media influencer issues. It really scares me to see student athletes, many of whom do not have professional representation, given opportunities to earn money endorsing brands and products without proper guidance. Most of these student athletes don't understand and don't appreciate the potential risks of working with advertisers, legal and regulatory risks, as well as risks to their personal brand. I would love to see, and I assume brands would also love to see, schools providing support for these student athletes. Kaylin, you have a very long history of helping companies create internal controls and programs that align with their strategic objectives. I think there are a number of tactics and approaches that companies often employ, which may also be useful to colleges and universities in establishing their NIL programs. Can you talk about one such approach that schools can consider? Yeah, thank you, Poe, and thank you for having me back. Uh, Excited to be here. I think that if we kind of take a step back, the overarching headline here is that on the athlete side as well as the university side, this program needs to be validated and recognized as real. This is a very real program. Even though we're at the infancy stages, you can already see the levels of growth that are happening. And as David had noted, it's very impactful. This is a time when athletes may be building their own personal brand, their own foundation that could last a lifetime. Keep in mind that according to the NCAA, only 2% of college athletes move on to professional ranks. However, with this NIL program, what they're building here, the foundation could be a foundation that can last a lifetime for a much larger swath of college athletes. And so implementing this program and making it real, we need to allocate the proper financial and human resources to support. So my suggestion in this approach is to create an internal advisory board at the university level. And that advisory board should consist of a number of member groups that include the university administration, the business school where applicable, the athletic departments, and then student athletes as well. So we have kind of a comprehensive group of representatives to lead this charge. That's a great idea. As you know, schools, like all of us, are generally resource-challenged, so identifying a few key focus areas, I think, would be important in creating an NIL program that provides much-needed support to student-athletes and is also sustainable. David talked about some of these areas before. What are your thoughts on this? Well, if we take the perspective of this actually being a business and we look at every member athlete as creating their own enterprise, likely for the first time, right? These are athletes that come in with very little resources. They have not had any formal training in business creation. And for the first time, they're creating their own personal enterprise. 
Some of the subjects that need to be addressed, one is compliance illegal, making sure that they're compliant with university standards, but also business compliance in terms of thinking about how to put together their own partnership deals and frameworks for their own personal brand. Second is personal branding. So asking themselves, what do you want to be known for? Who am I as a student athlete? And aligned with that is what brands do I want to partner with and what brands don't I want to partner with? Because these partnerships have a lasting impact on how your audience views you, not only today, but in the future. And then looking at the business of the athletes as a true business and thinking about how do I approach this as my own internal CEO and operate this as my own business manager. These frameworks need to be developed early on, and the university can certainly play a role in helping develop a foundation with these athletes. And then fourth is partnership management, right? There are many different types of brands and partners from many different business categories that are looking to play a role in this new advent of the NIL development. And with that is understanding what are the intricacies of different brand categories and sponsors. Some could be a local brand in your local community. Others could be a Fortune 500 consumer packaged goods company. There are many different complexities and things to consider when partnering with these different types of entities. While colleges and universities are trying to figure out how to put together an NIL program and what the school's role should be, boosters and collectives have been playing an active role in the NIL space. Matt, what are boosters and collectives and has their involvement been good or bad for schools or student-athletes? Essentially, collectives are special purpose entities focused on monetizing student-athlete NIL in connection with or for the benefit of a specific school or team. So it'll be an alumnus that might be someone who supports the school, typically was a booster, but now because of the rules and the flexibility, you have a number of, I guess, innovative approaches that are trying to offer some guarantee of NIL compensation to high schoolers or even current players at other colleges for recruitment purposes to make the school look more attractive as a place to attend as a student athlete. Not all collectives are bad or evil or, you know, some of them are quite potentially very beneficial in the marketplace. And there's a wide range of structures and activities ranging from some that have direct affiliations with the universities to others that don't. Some claim to be nonprofits, others are for-profit. The benefits to the schools are obvious, and it makes it a very attractive place for a potential student-athlete who's trying to weigh potentially different offers in different places to go play and to attend school in their favor. The challenge is determining whether the collective is compliant with state NIL law, NCAA, and school policies, and make sure that they don't cross the lines into pay-to-play or improper recruitment inducement. And then for colleges to then determine the right relationship or amount of affiliation they want to have with the collective. The NCAA Division I actually tried to address this somewhat earlier this year through guidelines that prohibit boosters. It's defined as potentially incorporating collectives as well from soliciting or directly communicating with recruits. But it's unclear what would be a violation that would yield what penalty for the school, for the student athlete, what investigation would need to happen, who would be conducting that investigation, 
all of that has been yet to, to happen. There are definitely a lot of issues for schools to consider when developing an NIL program. Let's talk about the scorecard that you created to help colleges and universities in their efforts. David, what is this scorecard and what is it for? So the Manette NIL scorecard is a tool that helps create a baseline standard for colleges and universities to build the respective NIL policies and programs. Using the scorecard, schools are able to evaluate where they stand today and build a roadmap for the future that makes sense for both the school and the student athletes. Can brands looking to work with student athletes also use a scorecard? Yeah, definitely. I think the scorecard can also be leveraged by brands who are potentially looking to see what criteria that they want to look for from a school or or certain student athletes that they want to work with. It's just important for them to minimize any chance of reputational risk for student athletes or the school. So working with schools that have put the necessary policies and programs in place helps create the best options for them. It potentially could be an important third-party check for the ad industry to have a quick way of looking and seeing what schools are more efficient places to do NIL deals with the student-athletes. So the scorecard could be incorporated perhaps into a brand's due diligence efforts prior to doing NIL deals. Absolutely. 100%. Absolutely. And to add to that, Poe, it can also be used as a recruiting tool because a prospective athlete that's looking at which universities that they want to join, they may be looking at the weight room, the coaches, et cetera. But nowadays, they're also saying, what university is best equipped to help me build my personal brand while I'm there? And so having this scorecard and having been validated by this scorecard suddenly gives you a validation tool where a student says, hey, you know, this university has been pre-vetted. And they take this seriously. I know that they have a certain amount of comprehensive tools in place to support me in building my own personal brand and business, regardless of whether I move on to professional ranks. I know that I'm going to get a solid business-led personal brand foundation here at this university while I'm an athlete. We all agree that having a robust NIL program would be truly beneficial to all the constituents in the NIL space, the brands, schools and student-athletes. Now, before we end this podcast, following our tradition, I'd like to ask each of you to provide a tip for colleges and universities as they try to navigate the evolving rules and norms of NIL. Matt, let's start with you. I would make sure that I look back at year one for NIL deals at my college or university and make sure that my policies actually address the deal flow that has happened. But I would also keep in mind that the market is only expanding and every institution needs to have an NIL policy and that if the deal flow is not there now, it might be in the next year or five years. So it needs attention now. And David, what is your nugget that you'd like to share with us? My nugget. I like that. I would say, well, in some instances, it pays to be a laggard and wait for the smoke to clear. But in this instance, I would highly recommend against that approach. This thing, what we call NIL, will continue to pick up speed and evolve quickly in the near term and the long term. So building the foundation now will equip schools to respond much faster down the road. And Kaylin, what about you? 
I would suggest colleges to reframe looking at this as a compliance-led expense to being an investment in your future. And look at this through multiple lenses of the fact that, that they're really building a business here for their athletes and for the university. And that business will have many economic rewards in the future if it's done correctly and properly invested in. Thank you, Matt, Kaylin, and David, for discussing the complexities of the evolving NIL marketplace and sharing your thoughts on what colleges and universities can do to build a successful NIL program. And thank you, listeners, for joining us once again for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. To learn more about these issues, please find a preview of Manat's recently launched NIL program playbook and scorecard available for download now. And as always, feel welcome to reach out with any questions you might have about this rapidly developing and significant area of growth for the advertising industry. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Perfect Balance, an advertising law podcast from Manat. The views expressed on the podcast reflect the personal views and opinions of the participants and are not intended to constitute legal advice or counsel under any circumstance. Downloading and listening to this recording do not result in the formation of an attorney-client or other business relationship. You should not act on any information in the podcast without seeking the advice of a competent attorney licensed to practice in your jurisdiction.